Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 673 for the 22nd of December, 2019. This week, Mac users have FileVault, Windows users have BitLocker, and all of the big cloud-based storage systems encrypt files before storing them. So do we really need another encryption utility? As it turns out, maybe we do. In short circuits, Yahoo's Groups service is starting what's likely to be a long slide to oblivion, that reminded me of older services that have met similar fates, CompuServe, Prodigy, Genie, and others. Also sliding into oblivion, Windows 7. Starting in mid-January, Microsoft will make it crystal clear to users that it is time to upgrade. Adobe has released a holiday gift for users of its Capture utility. Although both Android and iOS versions will receive updates, the iOS version gets more this time around. In spare parts, only on the website, beware of medical scams that may arrive by email, phone call, or even in-person visits by people who want to steal your information. Bots that are used to place fake online orders are still more prevalent on desktop computers, but the growing trend points to mobile devices. And 20 years ago, remember 56K modems? In 1999, an Oregon company called WorldSpy started offering free dial-up access to the Internet. It didn't work out exactly as intended. Files stored on one of the popular cloud-based storage locations like Google Drive or Microsoft's OneDrive or Box are encrypted. Microsoft's Windows 10 includes BitLocker. The Mac OS has FileVault. So do we need a separate encryption application? Well, yes, we do. And Cryptomator is a good choice because it's free, open source, and easy to use. The popular cloud storage locations all encrypt files on the wire and files at rest. Those are the terms used to describe the two conditions. When files are on the wire, they're being transferred from your computer to the cloud, and that might be through a Wi-Fi system or on an actual wire, or from the cloud back to your computer. The connection established uses Transport Layer Security, or TLS, to make the data unreadable while it's passing over the Internet. When files are at rest, they have been written to a disk drive on the cloud server. So it would seem that there is little need for another application that encrypts files. After all, you can use BitLocker or FileVault if you want to encrypt the files when they're on your computer. But there are some concerns. First, if the files aren't encrypted on your computer and you save them to Google Drive, the files are encrypted on the wire, but then they are unencrypted for a moment on the cloud and then encrypted again and written to a drive. Second, both BitLocker and FileVault are proprietary applications. Neither Microsoft nor Apple makes the code available for review. That's one of the primary attractions of open source applications such as Cryptomator. The code can be viewed by anyone, and that means security flaws are often found and corrected quickly. Anyway, security flaws? Well, yes, all applications have flaws, all of them. 
Software is written by humans, and as any cat can explain, humans are fallible. We make mistakes. We miss things. We forget to give them breakfast. Open source applications benefit from having an extra set of eyes on the code. Cryptomator isn't the only open source file encryption utility, but it is one of the easiest to use. In addition to Windows and the Mac OS, there's a version for Linux computers, and versions exist for iOS and Android mobile devices. The applications for mobile devices carry a small cost. Versions for Linux, Mac OS, and Windows are provided without charge, but the users do have an opportunity to donate to the developer. Windows users will need at least Windows 7. Mac OS users will need at least Mac OS 10.11, that's El Capitan. Android users need version 4.3 or higher of the operating system, and iOS users must have at least version 10.0. Cryptomator encrypts files locally using open-source routines instead of proprietary applications. And when files are saved to the cloud-based locations, the encrypted files are encrypted a second time and sent securely to the cloud server. Then, the on-the-wire encryption is removed so that the still-encrypted file can be scanned and is then encrypted for at-rest storage. The file is unencrypted only when you're using it on your computer. So, let's see how this works. The setup is routine. I'll demonstrate it on a Windows 10 machine. Those are the images you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Just download the file and run it. You'll probably see a warning from the Windows Defender firewall or any other firewall you've used in its place asking for permission to communicate on the network. Allow that access. The installation process will launch a second installer for an application that's used to mount a virtual drive on the computer. Allow that to run too. There's no need to change any of the default settings. Cryptomator will open when the installation is complete. The column on the left side of a two-column setup will be empty. You'll need to create your first vault. I elected to place the vault on drive D and call it, oh so cleverly, secure underscore D. Now this creates an encrypted directory. You can place the directory inside an existing directory, such as one that already syncs with a cloud-based service, or sync it later. You'll be asked to define a password and confirm the password. Be sure to remember that password because data cannot be recovered from the encrypted location if you forget it. Once you've done that, click Create Vault. Then you can open the secure location, which can be thought of as a USB drive because it'll be mounted with a new drive letter. Clicking the More Options button on the Setup page reveals several additional settings. The only one I changed was the one for Custom Drive Letter. The computer already has six physical drives with nine logical partitions. When I attach backup USB drives, they take letters K and L, so I wanted to avoid having the encrypted drives take those letters. If something like that doesn't concern you, just leave the default settings and click Unlock Vault. After unlocking the vault on the computer, you can close the Cryptomator app and it'll continue to run in the background. Now this is the point at which there might be a bit of confusion. Windows Explorer, or Qtor if you use it instead, will show the location of the encrypted directory, which is secure D on drive D. That's not where you want to store files though. If you place them there directly, they will not be encrypted. Instead, you need to place the files on the virtual drive. In my case, that's drive U. I created two encrypted virtual drives, secure D, which became drive U, and secure E, which became drive V. 
files placed on these virtual drives will be encrypted. The physical location of the drives what should be backed up to cloud storage, though, instead of backing up the unencrypted contents of the virtual drive. Fortunately, Cryptomator has a two-and-a-half-minute video that explains the process clearly. The obvious advantage of backing up the physical location where the encrypted files are stored is that the files and the file names are all encrypted. Now, you may be wondering how this is monetized. I said the desktop application is free, although donations are encouraged, and there is a small fee for the mobile versions, but that's hardly enough to keep development going. So the company offers customizable solutions for enterprises, including a Cryptomator server that guards against ransomware, viruses, data theft, and other risks. If you download and use Cryptomator, donations are welcome. The bottom line here has to be five cats. Cryptomator makes encryption as easy as possible. Several encryption applications exist, but some of them are a little difficult to use. The developers seem to have taken Einstein's everything should be made as simple as possible, but no simpler, seriously. Anyone who wants to delve deeper into how it works can visit the online documentation, but just watching the brief video will be sufficient for most people. Additional details and a download link are available on the Cryptomator website. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the Donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat. In short circuits, the last of the big old online proprietary systems is eliminating all public groups and converting the groups to email. Last month, Yahoo advised those who operate groups that big changes were coming, changes that Yahoo says better align with user habits. Yahoo groups will continue to exist, but Yahoo says that it's making changes to ultimately serve you better. Often companies that announce actions being taken for the user's benefit or safety or convenience are actually taking those actions for the benefit or safety or convenience of the company. Whether that's the case here remains to be seen. In the early days of online services, predating the general availability of the Internet, CompuServe was king. Remember them? Fifty years ago, CompuServe was founded in Columbus. It was called Compu-Serve Network back then, and the organization was the primary online service during the 1980s and continued to be a strong player well into the mid-1990s. At one time, users paid $10 an hour, which tended to reduce trolling and flame wars. By 1992, the hourly rate had dropped to about $2 per hour, CompuServe's online chat system and message forums covered a huge array of topics. They offered a library of software that could be downloaded. And in 1997, AOL acquired CompuServe. In 2015, Verizon acquired AOL. Two years later, Verizon also acquired Yahoo. You knew I'd eventually get back to Yahoo, didn't you? But before we fully pick up the Yahoo thread again, consider this. 
CompuServe had 3 million users in 1995. That's the best the company ever reached. At the same time, AOL had 20 million users, but AOL's performance was already starting to lag, and it had dropped from its earlier high of 27 million users. CompuServe discontinued its forums in mid-December 2017. Currently, those who want to join Yahoo Groups can do so only if they are invited, and a group moderator approves the request. New groups may still be created, but they can no longer be public. The choices for new groups are private, which means they are not listed in the group's directory, or restricted, meaning they are listed in the group's directory, and that membership requests have to be approved by a moderator. Members of groups can no longer upload or share content to the Yahoo Groups website. Instead, the groups will operate more like a listserv email group. Yahoo notes that additional changes were made on the 14th of December. Specifically, public groups no longer exist. All existing public groups have been converted to restricted status. And any content that was previously uploaded via the website will have been removed. Those who remember the early days of the online services will recognize what's happening here. In addition to CompuServe, these early dial-up services included Genie from General Electric, Prodigy from IBM, Sears, and CBS, early versions of America Online, Bix, the Byte Information Exchange from Byte Magazine, and thousands and thousands of bulletin board systems. They're mostly gone now, or at least forgotten if not gone. Also forgotten, but not entirely gone, are services like Gopher, Archie, Veronica, and Jughead. Things change, and what once seemed to be cutting edge becomes ordinary and then unimportant. So what we're seeing now is Yahoo Groups beginning what will probably be its long slide into oblivion. Well, speaking of oblivion, and we were just speaking of oblivion, starting January 14th, 2020, Windows 7 will begin its slide into oblivion. Windows 10 finally passed Windows 7 in market share this year, but some companies and a lot of consumers continue to hold on. Windows 7 was, after all, a remarkable operating system when it was released a little over 10 years ago. It followed the horrible Windows Vista and preceded the bad Windows 8. It was so much better than Vista, and Windows 8 introduced so many features that consumers hated, that Windows 7 has occupied a sweet spot despite the release of Windows 10. But everything has a life cycle, and Windows 7 is at the end of its life cycle. If you're still using Windows 7, you've probably seen pop-up messages from Microsoft that warn about security issues. These messages can easily be dismissed, but users will see more intrusive messages starting on the 15th of January. A full-screen overlay message will explain that support for Windows 7 has ended and that the system will be vulnerable to viruses and malware because all updates, including security updates, have ended. The full-screen prompt cannot be dismissed until the computer user actually responds to it. There are three options to dismiss the message. First, learn more. That's the one that Microsoft hopes users will choose so that they can be on the road to upgrading to Windows 10. Second, remind me later. This is for those who want to continue procrastinating and don't mind the risk. And third, never remind me again. 
I read that one as being the equivalent of turn off that damned fire alarm because I have work to do and the noise is distracting me. That choice is not a good one. And that's not to denigrate Windows 7. Windows 7 was a great operating system. I remember my excitement with Windows 7 touch features and handwriting recognition, its performance on multi-core processors, faster boot kernel improvements. The new Windows Media Center was a huge advance. Windows PowerShell was introduced, and an updated calculator function did more than just basic math. The ClearType text tuner made its first appearance in Windows 7. Recovery and troubleshooting were improved, and support for biometric devices, although primitive at the time, had been added. There was a lot to like in Windows 7, but that was a decade ago. Just as it was time back then for Windows XP users to move on, now it's time for Windows 7 users to move on. Adobe Capture is a handy little utility application for Android and iOS devices. It can be used to capture colors from nature to create a palette for a project that's being developed in one of Adobe's other applications. It can also be used to create patterns, vector-based shapes, and brushes that are based on a smartphone photo. Too often requested new features are being added to Capture. First, Create Color Shapes is an advanced version of the existing ability to create high contrast shapes, and it retains the color data within the resulting vector image. Shapes created in the application can then be used in many desktop applications, including Photoshop, InDesign, Illustrator, and Animate. The amount of detail retained in the resulting shape can be adjusted, and unwanted background images can be removed. This feature is currently available only on iOS devices. The second new feature, Create Shape-Based Patterns, has been added to capture versions for both Android and iOS tablets. Starting with one or more vector shapes, the user can combine them into seamless patterns. Each object can contain just a single color, but shapes with various colors can be combined within the image. Capture is free to download for Android and Apple devices, but it's most useful when combined with Adobe Creative Cloud. The app transforms a phone or tablet camera into a scanner so that it can collect colors, shapes, and patterns that can then be adjusted on the screen. No capturing is required for spare parts. Just visit the website and read that section. This week, you'll find these stories. Beware medical scams that may arrive by email, phone call, or even in-person visits by people who want to steal your information. Bots that are used to place fake online orders are still more prevalent on desktop computers, but the growing trend points to mobile devices. And 20 years ago, remember 56K modems? In 1999, an Oregon company called WorldSpy started offering free dial-up access to the Internet. It didn't work out exactly as intended. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.